Hello there. Hello there. And welcome to the latest episode of the Sith Takers Snapshots podcast. In this show, we're going to be chatting a little bit about the system open announcement in the UK before moving on to the substance of the episode, which is all about this building. Uh, my name's Bob D, and with me to have those chats is young Darren Granger. Hello there. And as a special guest, a man who loves building a list, uh, we've only gone and got Dave Sutcliffe to come on. Hello there. Well done, Dave. Well done. <laughs> Okay, uh, so first off, System Open has been announced for the second weekend in February, again at the Milton Keynes Arena. There has been a little bit of upset about the, the shortness of notice, bearing in mind it's Christmas, people financially committed and so on, and a little bit more upset about how quickly the, the hotel has booked out. On the other hand, we know from last year that Milton Keynes was a fantastic venue, and even better, you're going to have to do a great chance to have a practice at your list at the Sith Taker Open, which is happening the first weekend in February. We are looking at whether, given something of a surprise announcement for the system open date, whether or not we want to flip that format that we're going to be having in Stockport from extended to hyperspace to reflect the fact that a lot of people will want to use same list at both events on sequential weekends so if you could uh, let us know on the sith taker open event page if you have any firm preference that would be absolutely fantastic bearing in mind that we are looking to points changes in january and also potentially format changes for hyperspace possible rotation of ships out there so something to think about when you're thinking about what list to bring to the sith taker open and then on to the uk system open um in terms of the moaning um i've messaged alex thorne today i think it's fair to say that he gets the feedback and uh, next year i don't think we will be looking at the same problem uh in the meantime let's get back to the lists um in the last show we had uh, a great um discussion between will and uh who was on with will rich oh, of course it was uh between will and rich uh, about building around a a specific ship and i thought as we were as we, i was listening back to that that episode um we we worry an, an awful lot about list building and some of the the examples that they were talking about were pretty niche. Dave, do you think list building is is as significant as it used to be in in first ed? No, I think I think at the moment it has certainly taken a backseat. You look at a lot of the results that have come out of like worlds and all the grand championships and what's been winning in hyperspace trials before that and system opens and it's clear there's a a, a lot of routes to victory and that a lot of the time it's about what you do with the list that's more important than the specific pieces you have to have in your list to make it work. Um, so squad building is a, a great skill. Uh, it's a skill that you need. But I think there's a hangover from first edition of people really feeling like you can you can decide your tournament before you turn up. Yeah, I kind of miss those days. And certainly the the way that they have played with points has meant that as soon as the list starts to look as though it's going to be dominant they've been able to to get it out of the meta very fast and there's loads of examples of that whether it's um a five y-wing list or four phantoms or the triple skurg and Dreyer, uh or even back in in the initial days of 2.0 the four or five ship uh scum lists that were just packing 
what would now be 240 points into a 200 yeah. point list and and that sort of means we we're achieving true balance is is that fair uh they're working towards it i don't know how much it'll ever be balanced because it's it's a wheel and it's going to keep turning i mean i don't know how much they've ever really left one of the good squads untouched through any points changes um everything seems to get whack-a-mole to some extent and that just cycles it around and something else will come back up and that'll get whack-a-mole down but there's going to be swings and balances every time something's going to turn out to be a little bit better than the rest and people will find it and then it'll get whack-a-mole down and you'll the search will be on for something else but so long as the difference between the top and the next isn't that big you can solve it with play and list building takes a bit of a backseat yeah and i think that's very much where we've we've got to now um the discussions well when it comes to to how are you going to build a list generally is it is it accurate to say that it's best to start with an idea of an archetype and then then build from that uh, yeah, personally, that's that's how I start my lists. Probably all start in one or two places. Either I'll pick up what someone else has done and go, I'm going to do that, but see what I would do differently to them and see if I can find a spin on it that I think adds value. Or I'm going to start with a ship or a concept or something that I feel there's untapped potential in and go, right, if this is going to be good, how am I going to bring that out? But I think it's important uh, to look at the full 200 points. I mean, you want a squad that works as a squad rather than has a single trick. It, it does very well. Is that, I mean, that's a generalisation, but a, a broadly accurate one? Yeah, you're trying to build a squad. It's squad building, not ship building. That's what we're talking about. Um, and as much as I'll say, so I start with, can I get some potential out of this? The, the potential I want to bring out is making it fit into a coherent squad where the squad as a whole is strong. There's no point in bringing one strong ship, putting it on the table, pushing it out there with no help at all and watching it die. The point is that it's going to work within my squad and form a, a coherent um, problem for my opponent. And at the moment, there seems to be a lot of uh, movement towards evenly pointed ships even if they're different types of ship there are quite a few squads around with either 540 point ships or um maybe 620 point ships and then uh one 80 point ship you know there's, there's a lot of squads where the points on many of the ships within the squads are quite balanced and there's an obvious advantage in that and i'm thinking in particular of the of the sister stuff darren where you've got uh, multiple little ships that are all worth about the same and and one big target. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, CIS do it quite well in terms of uh, just the raw cheapness and efficiency that they can pack in at a nice uh, round package of the, the the 20 points of the, the drone with the landing struts. Um, but the, the lists have got to complement each other well. I mean, you look at um, things like Inquisitors that come in around about... 40 to 50 points depending on what you put on them um and they they kind of complement each other well and it depends how you want to build it in blocks but you don't what you don't see in the list that do well are things like just a random selection of the ships that you want to fly so you wouldn't see in cis you wouldn't see an infiltrator a drone a nantex and a bomber because just the the parts there the, the the strengths that they play to don't come out like that. 
Um, so you see kind of where you see most diversity is when you get kind of the, the two ship builds where you've got like Boba Guri or, or Boba Fenn or Han Jake. The two ships are very, very different. Whereas where you're looking at more synergistic kinds of squad building, you've got like Jedi and some beef or triple Jedi or things like, um, as I said, the Inquisitors. Um, and, and you generally get like a bit of a mixed arms race in some of the lists that do well, so like Pocket Ace and Toolbox. Well, I think those sorts of lists make it very difficult to decide where to start in, in picking them apart. Yeah, they absolutely can. I mean, you look at um, one of our recent guests, um, Gary from the uh, island hyperspace that we went to, his list epitomizes that it's four ships that are all 50 points that all you kind of go hmm which is my best target here is it that one is it that one oh no it's that one that just broke me um and and really it can catch you out um in that way if you've got no one perfect target but then some lists have a perfect target you just can't catch it we all know you love soon tfl bob Ah, uh, well not anymore i mean i kind of feel a bit sorry for sunter these days but he's now been replaced by the likes of Anakin who can float around the board at will. And I think Anakin is arguably tougher to kill than Sunti was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the double reposition with his whole dial open is just ridiculous. I'm assuming you're talking about Jedi Anakin, not baby Anakin or Y-Wing oh, Anakin. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I think that that's a, a notable change from 1.0 in 1.0. There tended to be, a series of puzzles set by each meta where it would be a case of how do you defeat this particular list, whether it was uh, a tie swarm in the early days of, of uh, first edition or towards the end, the, the Fen ghost list. And that was a match you could play repeatedly until you knew whenever you saw a Fen ghost on the other side of the board, if you did certain things, you stood a chance of winning the game. Whereas now it seems that, that every match presents its own puzzle depending on what four or five ships your opponent is setting up across the board, because there's so many different uh, and good options that are available. In terms of game design, is that a fair comment, Dave? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I, it's part of the diversity of, I think, bringing in seven factions. It breaks things apart in its own way. Uh, you're more likely to meet things that have to be anchored in different squads and can't lean on the same questions you you won't you won't see for instance in first edition omega leader was across a relatively broad range of, of ships of, of squads because he was available to a third of all the squads uh, and now he's only available to a seventh um so i think i think that alone has done has, has done it and i think also we've not quite built up that point where you can put the upgrades together in a certain way to create something that is just so compelling you have to play it and then that becomes something you see all the time. I don't think we've got there particularly. I mean, you won't see Omega Leader now either because she's terrible, but... Yeah. And what you don't want to do is give your opponent an obvious first target. There are some of the, of the utility pieces that are so good and make the rest of the list function so well that, that it's very difficult just to chuck them into the list and, and hope. For example, Hal Runner, if you're seeing a TIE Swarm, must be target number one. So you're going to want to back a piece like Hal Runner up with something like Iden Versio. 
yeah, I agree. I agree with that to an extent. I think it it is fine to give your opponent an obvious target, so long as you know that's the obvious target that you're giving the opponent, and you're going to adjust uh, how your squad is around that, and how you're going to play on the table, knowing that that that's your obvious target. So, I love wedge. Um, and I love Wedge because when I put him on the table, I can really predict what my opponents are going to do when they see him. If he's a Sun Tier, if he's a, a Vader, he's going to stay well away from Wedge. And I can use Wedge like a sheepdog and just herd my opponent across the table into the rest of my guns. And if my opponent's a jousting list, he's going to go, he's going to almost hit the front of his ships are almost like magnetically attracted to Wedge. And I can <laughs> rope-a-dope them around the table with Wedge. And Wedge can do a fantastic amount of work in some matchups. Never firing, just constantly four straight boost, three, three bank boost, threatening that if you ever leave him alone, he's going to cut in and get behind you. And then you'll die to the rest of my squad because Wedge is such an obvious first target that I know how to manipulate you into chasing him to take advantage of that. When you put something in that's such an obvious, like if you've got a crux point that is, this is what makes my ship, my list work, and you don't recognize it and you don't defend it, yeah, you're you're asking for trouble, and good players will find that out. And one of the the flip sides of running a squad where everything is uh, forty points or everything is fifty points, and they're all basically doing the same job, it's difficult for your opponent to know where to start, but it's also quite hard for them to get that wrong. Yeah, I think I think that's just as true, um, and and I think also it makes it difficult for you to predict what your opponent's going to do. It's much easier for you to go think they're going to jerk right after this guy, and actually they go left, and that catches you out. The more that you can um, lead your opponent in their in their story of working out target priority, the more certain you are of what they're going to do, and the better prepared you are for it. Cool. Okay, and we we talked about your thoughts on uh, looking at an archetype and, and going from there. It occurred to me as I was, as I was thinking about our chat this afternoon, it's, it's a good idea to work out what you want an engagement to look like when your ships meet the enemy and, and try and work towards building a squad that can engineer that particular engagement. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about this. And I don't know if it's, if it's something that's odd about how my brain works or it's how everyone works, and I've never really discussed this, but whenever I'm building a squad, there's almost like a simulation of what that's going to ha- what that's going to do is running in my head. And every time that I put a different ship in or put a change in upgrade over, I'm rerunning that simulation. Like what's changed now? Um, so a good example, if I put um, a Rebel 4 ship list together and I had Wedge in and suddenly I find I really want a few more points. So what if I drop Wedge down to Braylon? Braylon's good. Braylon's a good rebel ship. Costs a few points less than Wedge, can save me points. But what's going to change now? Well, Braylon is slow. He doesn't like things to get behind him because when he gets stressed, he can't K-turn and he can't turn. So now my list has to adapt to, rather than having Wedge, who's going to flank, I've got a slow gun there. It's my big gun. And everything around it has to adapt. Um, And that simulation just keeps running. And every time that you change, you're thinking, how am I actually going to put these ships together where's my deployment am i going to deploy on the flank do i need to be in the middle because i'm quite slow um if my opponent is i6 aces can i tuck in and run my run my i5 in along as a joust or is he going to get hung out to dry and keep running that visualization of what's going to happen um because the closer you are 
So having that in your head by the time you get to the table, it's so much faster to go through the um, the learning curve of the list on the table and is it working the way that you expected if you've got a way that you expect it to work. I mean, most lists have a, a sort of one route to doing things. Uh, a vulture swarm will will try and surround stuff and make it difficult for that thing to manoeuvre by presenting itself as sort of mobile asteroids. And it's got to be useful for, for every squad to have a core strategic aim. Yeah, I think so. You need to have an idea of what it is that your list is going to do very well that is going to give you a clear route to victory. Um, and arguably one of the weaknesses that First Order has in that it's been one of the slower factions to really find a footing in its own on its own um, grounds, as it's not really clear for First Order what that is. Their aces aren't super acey. Their jousters aren't super jousty. They don't have a howl runner to swarm up with. They don't have some TFL and Von Regs coming. So it's difficult for the First Order to have that plan. But all the other factions are going to come with something that they go, this is what I'm here to do. Um, and you want to be able to adapt off that. But having that core plan of this is the thing that I'm going to do better than my opponent it really is the North Star through squad building and into strategy, I think. But more flexible lists are becoming more common. I mean, if you think, for example, of the uh, list that won the Australian Open uh, with the uh, Infiltrator and a bunch of Vultures, that had options as to how it could take on any particular appointment, uh, any particular opponent. And for me, I think those more flexible lists are possibly doing rather better uh, at the top end of tournament in 2.0. Yeah, I think there's only so far having a this is what I do and it's all I do um, is going to get you. It's going to get you because you're going to get to the top end of a tournament and find people who are good enough to work that out before they see it happen to them. You're going to carry your way through the Swiss rounds probably quite well with people going two, three turns in and go, ah, yeah, turns out that's what you're going to do and it's really good and I should have stopped that three turns ago. By the time you get into the quarterfinals and the semifinals, your opponent knows should be good enough that they know what you're going to do before you do it. And that's where you need to be able to mix it up. Um, I really liked that Australian list because it had the um, the evade um, the evade tactical relay in. KTB4. Yeah, which was otherwise one that people didn't really like because they didn't get why it was defensive. But I think... It really added a lot to how reliably the droid stayed on the table to become more of a problem. And and that was one that opened my eyes to. That was that was an upgrade that I'd ignored until I saw it. And as soon as I saw it in that list, I went, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I get I get what that's doing. And it was presenting itself as a jousting block that didn't just melt away when it got faced with another jousting block. And one of the advantages that the uh, Separatist lists have is that you can build them quite effectively up to 200 points. And, and that enables you to do something that I'm a massive fan of with list building, which is to try to make every point work in every single game you play. I don't want to get distracted by a long sort of sidebar on uh, whether bidding is a, a smart move or not. But in a nutshell, if you spend points on a bid, there are going to be a lot of matches where those points are thrown away. Whereas if you can spend points on upgrades that work in more or less every game, then uh, you, you are arguably automatically getting more efficiency out of the 200 you're allowed to spend. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with that as well. If you're going to, you want to try and leverage all the points and the most points that are not doing something in the game, the harder you need to work the points that you have got something doing. Um, I thought I saw ahead of Worlds in particular, to, just to briefly touch the bids, that bid spiral really went deeper and deeper and deeper. And I wasn't surprised, particularly by the time you got to Worlds, that like, Ollie, Ollie won Worlds with an Imperial Aces list that was perfectly happy to spend its points because however deep you bid, you weren't certain it was going to buy you an advantage. So you're better off buying upgrades, putting them on the table and using them. Yeah, and, and we saw a similar example of that at the um, Grand Championship that's just been in the States where just prior to Worlds, everyone was looking at Sunfac and five droids or um, playing around with that to get the 20-point the, the bid. And then actually the guy that won it was... Sunfac and, and six droids and built to 200 or 199. I think he had a one or two point bid. Uh, yeah, I yeah, think I mean, there were plenty of examples. Sorry, just because just Lou, Lou Whitson, who we, we all know, he was there in the in the sharp end of worlds with his Imperial Aces list that had spent all its points on, on extra toys. And I, and I think it, it made sense. You've got the 200 points, put them on the table and make them an advantage. I mean, upgrades like Sense do a lot of the work that a bid would do anyway, although even Sense is subject to some of the same caveats that a bid is. Yeah, but at least you've un at least you know when you put Sense in a list over a 15-point bid that in the games where you were going to outrank the opponent on initiative anyway, only five points got punted away rather than 15 or 20 got punted away. Um so I think it's a, it's a nice way of going, right, I've got a tool for when I am getting outbid. I've got a tool for that. I'm not just giving it up my advantage completely, but I want to be stronger in all of the other matches. Yeah, and that's the, that comes down to the, what we're talking about, list building, really, because there's no point taking a load of I4 Jedi um, and a 20-point bid, and one of them's got sense, because what, what's it doing in that list? It's not, it's not adding anything to... to um, enhance your list. Sense is great as an insurance policy. Take uh, three initiative um, five Jedi, give one of them sense, then guess what? You can spend your 200 points uh, and you've got more toys to add. Um, it gets you that uh, laser calibrated upgraded to a, um, a Delta 7 or a regen droid or spare parts or whatever that is. And you kind of go, well, if I do come up against a, 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 um, a list that either outbids me or has the uh, pilot skill six uh, ships, guess what? I've got sense there as a, as a backup. Yeah, and I think it's also a useful way of, of analysing your list and working out how it can be improved. If you're spending uh, serious points on proton torpedoes and you're only ever firing one of them, even if you're winning with that list that means you're, pay you're paying twice as much for that proton torpedo as you should be because you're think, only getting half of its use out. And proton torpedoes is a great example where I think now it's gone up in cost to 13 points. It's difficult to justify putting it onto something that can't reliably double mod it. Like I think when it was at nine points, it made sense as you could just throw it out as a four-dice attack with a mod behind it. But now it's been jacked up because... Because when it went on ships that could double mod it, it was too good. It's at a point where you've got to be able to back it and reliably be able to go, how am I going to double mod this shot? Yeah, and what you see in the, the meta there is a shift from proton torps to uh, uh, so a four-dice shot that you'll see on like um, an X-wing 
to um, the ordnance that you do see is things like concussion missiles, which is a three dice shot on something that's got two red dice natively. There's still ordnance there. It's just shifted to a, a more efficient way of doing it. So things like the Inquisitors that have got the, the target lock from gender and or the force to back them up and things like that. That's where it's kind of shifted slightly. And it's only you six points in your list. Yeah, absolutely. And you do reach the point, though, surely, where instead of uh, proton torpedoes on, on two X-wings, you're actually better just taking a Z-95. Yeah, and I think that was probably the magic in Dan Taylor's list at Worlds, is that there's so many there so many times you would have hit that four-ship list and gone, well, I've got a nasty gap here. Uh, I've got 55 points to spend. Mm, okay, well, Blount's quite good. And then if I put a proton torpedo on Wedge, outmaneuver on Jake, then... Okay, lone wolf on something and call it done. And it was just much more efficient to go, no, I want another ship. I want another body. I want another set of guns. Um, another problem for my opponent. Another thing that's going to take up space on the board and get a job done. I mean, that was uh, you uh, recently back to the world of blogging. That was, that was the point of your last article, I think. Yeah, I think, I think the, the point of my, my blog, which was just out, thank Thank you for mentioning it. Um, um, that is that is available at stayontheleader.blogspot.com. Other blogs are available. Dave, other blogs are available, but if you haven't read Dave's, you need to go right back and read some of the early stuff uh, where Dave was very strongly, arguably, the first person to actually introduce thinking about maths and how games work into X-Wing. Uh, but anyway, back to the latest yeah, one, and, Dave. And, and I think that thinking about maths is what my article that I just went up the other day was about because the advantage of bringing these small guys is not obvious because they're not glamorous. They're not I-6 super Jedi who can reposition twice and force mod their attacks. They're, they're not the Millennium Falcon with all the crew on it. Uh, they're not wedge stripping your agility. Uh, they're just a dude, a little dude and a little ship. But it takes energy from your opponent to deal with your little dude and a little ship. It takes energy from them to plan around where your little dude and his little ship is going to be. Uh, and the damage that they're going to do and that they're going to have to face the damage off. And that's the magic in the little guys is constantly just drawing attention for your enemy away from the rest of your list. And it's no bad thing maybe to, to start with a list and then to tinker. Uh, no, um, and, and I, I'm, I do this all the time. Uh, my current favorite list is a first order list and I would not have got this list if I hadn't seen what um, Old Para was playing uh, with Avenger, because I think Avenger's amazing, and it took him to put it on the table and show me that. Um, but I also tried his list and went, I think I can see a gap, and I think I can improve it. And it's quite a call to make, having played it twice. And he, he was second at Polish Nationals to go, yeah, I think I can improve it anyway, and I'm probably wrong. Um, but that's I'm a tinkerer, so I will do. Um, and I use um, MetaWing a lot to, to help me tinker because if I'm heading into space that I don't really understand, uh, there's a lot of experience out there in what players have tried and what's worked for them and what's not. And I lean on that quite often when I'm heading into new and unfamiliar territory. Yeah, and I think it's, it's important to use MetaWing and this fortress um, very much in context it's yeah. easy to sort of plug in what's winning the most at the moment and then just assume that that is the best list. 
But actually, that takes you immediately into problems over where has that list done well? Um, what local metas has it been flying in? And most importantly, how is it going to work for you as a player? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I talk about metaling quite a lot, but I also take, not with a pinch of salt, but you know, there's a little seasoning to hand uh, whenever I look at um, metaling and, and what it does. But it helps me with... Um, Recently, the decimator started doing well, and I thought, oh, I've not played a decimator very much. I'll, I wouldn't mind dusting that off. Uh, Rear Admiral Churino is what's doing very well. I'll play that. I assume the first upgrade to go on, on rack is uh, Minister Tua, because he benefits from Reinforce. That gives you a free Reinforce. That's surely the first uh, upgrade that goes on. And it turns out that Tua is a massive trap. But if I <laughs> hadn't looked at Meta Wing and gone, huh, number one, hardly anyone's using Tua, and number two, the people who are aren't doing as well as the people who aren't. Um, what's going on there? I'd still be throwing sewer down, going, "God, this decimator's rubbish. I hate it." Uh, <laughs> I'm constantly, get, constantly getting these free reinforces, but dying anyway. Um, and it just gets you a head up into uh, something that you don't have the experience on. Yeah, and when you're looking at upgrades on a on a particular ship, you can run it through the calculator. And just make sure that the upgrades are performing in the in the way that you think they are. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, of doing some of the maths. Um, a great example, and this is another one that I'll, I'll ho I'm going to hoover up information and advice from everyone who tries to give it to me. Uh, there's a friend of mine, Dan Smith from Australia, who uh, was playing his list that he did very well with called Vorpal Blade, which was two Black Sun Assassin Star Vipers, Fen and Seavor, uh, and he won his hyperspace trial with that. Um, but he had crack shot on them all. And when he showed me the list, I was like, but well, you've got the spare points. Why have you not got Predator on a couple of them? Uh, and he made the really good point that when you math it out, you need to get bullseye with a ship with Predator four or five times during a game for it to have a good chance of being worth more than the one damage you will get from the first time you get crack shot bullseye. And as soon as you realise... Yeah, go on. And, well, crack shot, of course, is a lot cheaper than Predator. Yeah, you're saving points on it. You're front-loading your benefit, which gives you... You're going to get your benefit earlier in the game, so it's going to multiply through the game longer. But just... If I'm not running Sun Tier, am I going to get Bullseye four times, five times? With a, with, a, with an I3 Star Viper? N not a chance. So as much as it's lovely to go, oh, sure, I've got these bendy barrels, I can line it all up, and I'll get an extra reroll. The math says that reroll only works when you get a blank. There's a chance it'll come back as a blank. Once you've turned it into a hit, if you turn it into a hit, there's a chance that they're going to evade it anyway. Just crack shot their evade, deal the damage, and don't worry about it. Yeah, but you can prove anything with maths. You could just go with your gut and, and do as a great Han Solo said, never tell me the odds. <laughs> and that and that works for and that works for a lot of people, but I quite like maths. No, I'm being facetious. Um, it, it, what we've kind of drifted in is, is um, that that move away from designing a list of someone that's relatively new and inexperienced to the game that's probably been playing for less than a year in terms of um, how they approach a list to then really kind of nuts and bolts fine-tuning with uh, big data behind it to say well I see what they've done there but actually I think this is slightly better um, and, and those, those fine-tuned tweaks because you could give two people um, the same list from different parts of the world and they will play it completely differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that is still the X factor of 
um, of how you fly it makes all the difference. And I think it's something that we saw through first edition. Um, lists began to, sp- to propagate and spread more rapidly and metagames evolved, but it was about the list was what spread. I think what's happened in second edition, streaming has spread. And as streaming spreads, styles of play spread. Um, yeah, so- I mean, that's a, that's a fair comment. I mean, you look back to first edition and you look at kind of Ghost Fen. There's only one way to fly Ghost Fen, triple jumps. Really, there's only really one way to fly triple jumps. I know all the triple jump players are going to give me so much nerd rage for that, but um, typically you went forwards, you got your target lock and your focus, and you fired your torpedoes. You flew Ghost Fen around the board, assume with a TLT. You flew uh, Fair Ship Rebels as, as a block kind of thing. These all they were only ever flown in one way because it was all about the list. Now it's much more about flying a list that you're comfortable with in a way that you en- enjoy and are good at. I think the triple jumps is a great example, and Bob will Bob was right there with us as Tom went on his massive Tom Reed went on his massive jump master killing spree, and it's a great example. Tom played it differently. Tom had different triple jumps and he played them differently. But because he wasn't constantly on streaming, he just kept doing it at different tournaments. And nobody else ever learned to do it the way he did it unless you sat there and watched him play a dozen games, which Bob and I did, but hardly anyone else really were around that long to do. Whereas I think now with streaming, he would be on, he'd be featured twice, twice during the Swiss and once in, once in the quarterfinal and he'd be in the final. And you'd have four examples from one tournament of how to fly this list. Not just what it what cars to put in it, but how to fly it. But that that's we are walking away from a list building discussion. Yeah. Okay. Um well as we're walking away from this building, uh let's leave it there. We're gonna be back next week. And in the meantime, uh thank you very much for joining us, Dave Sutcliffe. Thank you for having me. And goodbye from Darren Granger. I'm afraid you'll probably hear from him again in the near future. Yeah, maybe. All right, ta-ta from me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>